You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today I am joined by Dr. Beth Hunter, who is an assistant professor at University of Kentucky and a research methodologist in the evidence-based practice program at the American Occupational Therapy Association. Beth, you have contributed to several critically appraised topics and systematic reviews related to cancer rehabilitation, productive aging, and post-acute care. As a member of the evidence-based practice team at AOTA, you contribute an essential skill set in the development, completion, and dissemination of systematic reviews and practice guidelines on a variety of topics. We're really happy to have an evidence-based practice expert on the show today, and we thought you would be the perfect person to interview about the basics and first steps to a very important topic, which is evidence-based practice. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's great. Of course. So right off the bat, Beth, how did you become interested in evidence-based practice? Well, I would say that it started when I was in my master's in occupational therapy program. And I was doing this as a, you know, a non-traditional student. I went back to school for OT in my thirties and I quickly decided once I started that program that I loved research. And that was the part that I liked more actually, even than the clinical practice part. So I, decided during that program that I was going to go ahead and go for my PhD because I wanted to be involved in research. And so I did, and I got my PhD in gerontology, and then I did a postdoc um, in uh, cancer prevention and control. So I've been doing research to one degree or another since about 2005. I happened to connect with AOTA and evidence-based practice when I was working with a team to try and develop a cancer systematic review. And I had never done a systematic review before. And so working with AOTA, they helped guide me in, in doing my first reviews. And then that those, the cancer reviews ended up becoming a cancer practice guideline because they had not had one before. And I just got really intrigued by it all. And really learning the importance of not just creating these things, but actually then translating them into practice. I mean, that's the point of why we publish things. But so that I would say is how I became interested and got involved in this. That's really fascinating because it started out just as a passion or interest of yours. And you mentioned how AOTA was able to help you kind of carry that out and learn how to complete these systematic reviews. And now that's exactly what you do, um, helping other people to complete these reviews and, and translate the evidence into practice. Yeah. Um, so that's really neat how, how you've come full circle. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, I, I come from the research side of it versus the clinical side. So to me, I just enjoy the evidence part. And I know that it's not the same for everybody. <laughs> you know, not everyone wants to be a researcher. And so that's part of this translation piece that we're really working on to help practitioners access this information more easily versus having to be passionate about research. And was there anything else in your journey that led you to join the AOTA evidence-based practice team? So after I did those reviews and the resulting practice guideline, 
soon after that, their research methodologist retired. And so Deborah Lieberman, who runs the um, evidence-based practice program, contacted me and asked if I would be interested in taking that spot. And so that was a, that was exciting, but it was also a leap for me to, to do that. So I work as a consultant for them. I'm still faculty at the University of Kentucky, but I do work as their research methodologist on their review teams and guideline teams. And so it's been incredible, incredible experience. And it's, I will tell you, constant learning. Um, there's nothing black and white about any of this. And it's becoming so, such a hot topic that the amount of knowledge and the, the changes in methodology are just happening constantly. So it's been fun. You know, we are always adapting and learning as we go, as I work with AOTA. Absolutely. And could you explain to me and, and our listeners what exactly your title as a research methodologist entails? Um, what, what do you do with the EBP team? It is a team. It's, it's completely a team um, group practice. I am one member of the team. So I come at it with experience in conducting reviews. And part of this is through reading, through doing them myself, through reading. And now I've been working for AOTA for a number of years. So it's helping develop reviews, helping put together teams, helping guide teams, developing the actual systematic review protocol, which is very, very, very important in a systematic review. It's what makes it systematic. After the reviews are done, I help with getting things ready to hopefully publish an AJOT for all those reviews. I then work with the team as we develop the practice guidelines, which come from those reviews. And then I work with them in a variety of other ways, which we can talk about, but we're very interested in this knowledge translation piece. So I work with them on projects related to that. I work with them on other evidence, other translation pieces, and then any other project they think that I would be beneficial to, to them. And so I, I take part in a lot of different things with AOTA. Absolutely. As part of my capstone, I've had the chance to sit in on some of those meetings. And I really think you do an amazing job at taking a complicated process uh, that's confusing to some, me included, uh, which is research methodology and making it possible and simple for authors and contributors to complete um, I know me, every time I think I understand research methodology, I encounter a new term or a new mm -hmm. research design or a new type of analysis and realize I actually know nothing about research methodology. So I think your role is of vital importance. You know, research is scary to people, not everyone, but to a lot of people. And there are so many different levels of skill. So we don't have to be experts in research to use research. And I, to be honest with you, I would not say I am an expert in all methodological aspects of research. I certainly know my type of research, which is qualitative, but I'm learning, you know, it's pretty easy to know what you need to evaluate in any kind of a research project. And, and again, you don't have to be an expert in statistics. You don't have to be an expert in, in anything to, to critically read a research article. So I'm glad you brought that up and we can talk about that also more if you'd like down the road, but that making research seem too scary, there's always going to be someone that knows more than you about it. So 
you've got to kind of remove that fear and then just start the process of learning how to be a critical reader of research. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I, I know I was getting a little sidetracked, um, <laughs> but let, let's get back to, to talking about the evidence-based practice team. What would you say the goals of the evidence-based practice team at AOTA are? There are a number. The first thing is we want to guide OT practice. We want uh, occupational therapy to be the best it can be. We want to help OTs and um, AOTA members to achieve that. So one of the ways to do that is to try to, you know, to strive to do as much as possible related to evidence-based practice. So it's very hard. You know, we just talked about research as its own thing can be scary to people. But if you're going to ask an OT to read every journal article that comes out and then try to evaluate it, you're asking a lot. Now, should they stay up to date in their areas of expertise? Yes, they should be looking at the journals, particularly AOTA members who have access, free access to OT journals, which is wonderful. But what we try to do with a systematic review and a practice guideline is take some of the work out of it. You know, we're using teams that are going to pull all the articles we can possibly get our hands on through a, method, a systematic way using medical librarians, et cetera, analyzing it and trying to come down to usable nuggets for a practitioner. So they don't have to go and read those 600 articles. They can read the systematic reviews and what was found out of those articles and hopefully take the takeaway points home with them. And then a practice guideline even more so takes those reviews, so it might be four to six reviews that are then combined for the practice guideline, usually based on a topic like a diagnosis. Our goal with practice guidelines right now is to really get this translation piece because it is known in all fields that even though we can give you a lot, a practitioner, a lot of information, the step of getting it to be implemented in a real life setting doesn't happen automatically. So this idea of knowledge translation or implementation, we want our materials to be used. That's why we do them. And uh, so the goal for, for us is to provide great information and then to help people know how to use it. I, I love that it's a, a two-part goal. Um, and I really like your use of usable nuggets. I think that's yeah. a great way to, to define the materials that you guys produce. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. I'd love to, to go a little bit more in depth on some of those uh, EBP publications and materials that you and the EBP team do work on developing. 
Can we start with systematic reviews? What what makes a systematic review the gold standard of evidence? Well, a systematic review is a methodology. So the most important thing in a systematic review is that it's systematic. There are steps that are universally universally acknowledged are needed steps to conduct a good systematic review that produces information that is trustworthy. So there are a lot of different groups out there that have de developed things. The steps though typically are, are similar. So we fo follow predominantly the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews or PRISMA, which is a guideline that gives you what needs to be in a systematic review, what steps need to be taken. Also Cochrane, the Cochrane reviews, they have books. They are, I mean, they're the, they really are the gold standard of systematic review methodology. And we base a lot of our work off of them. But so what makes it good is the methodology. It's not a book report. You know, it's not a um, literature review. It's not a scoping review, very different things. So a scoping review, you're looking for gaps with a clinical systematic review, which is what we do. We have a clinical question and we're looking for answers typically related to types of intervention or and or outcomes for a certain population. But so the key point is that this methodology is followed. It's evaluated by many people. It's never just one person doing a systematic review and that would be poor methodology to help reduce some bias um, and to be sure that we're doing the analysis and things needed, it typically takes a team. And in fact, one of the checklists for quality is that it's more than one person taking partner review. So it's very team-based. You're getting feedback from many people. A lot of eyes are on it. They're very time consuming. So it's not something that everyone's gonna run out there and do in systematic review because it is very time consuming. And it takes some resources. That's one thing, you know, with AOTA, we do not do the reviews. So the people that do the systematic reviews, we develop, you know, pull together teams, but we provide support. We provide the medical librarian. We provide our expertise. Um, we guide the development of questions with input from many other people, including the authors, et cetera. Um, consumers, all sorts of people but it takes a team to really do a systematic review. And if it's done well, it's great evidence, particularly for uh, practitioners. There is no perfect review though. I just wanna, I wanna add that. You know, there is no perfect review. So there's always gonna be a weakness in a systematic review, but you need to look at it. And there are ways to evaluate quality of systematic reviews too. So, you know, it's important to be critical when you read a systematic review as well. Okay, absolutely. And so you guys are following, you have this team approach, you're following a standardized protocol. Um, about how many articles would you say on average are reviewed in the development of one of your systematic reviews? It's really varied. You know, it depends on the topic. So we're in the midst of updating um, stroke systematic reviews. That's a very big review. There's a lot of literature. There's a lot of research in stroke stroke, particularly certain parts of it. So we tend to have questions like geared towards ADL, IADL, other participation, caregivers. 
ADL questions in stroke is a huge, huge review. They have a lot more articles than say the caregiving question. So it really varies, but we are definitely talking thousands to start. I take the first look just to cut out the things that are so clearly not, you know, it's the wrong population. It's not, if we're talking about stroke, it's not even about stroke or it's not within our protocol, our pre-planned protocol parameters, typically like the date of publication. You know, we'll pick parameters of what, between what years we're gonna review or if it's not research, or if it's completely out of the realm of OT, like we're talking medications or surgeries or things like that. So I get rid of a lot, but then authors will have anywhere from a low of, you know, a thousand something to into the hundreds. I don't think anyone's had less than 150. So it's a big review and some are very big. Absolutely. I think hearing those numbers kind of I think can be helpful to our listeners who maybe have that fear of research and maybe feel overwhelmed, like, oh, wow, there's thousands of articles on stroke. But that's why you can turn to systematic reviews, um, because this EBP team and everybody you work with is going through those thousands of articles and bringing them down with the, the systematic review to make it more manageable and to take away, take away the fear. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, definitely our listeners should use those. And you mentioned practice guidelines earlier as well. I'm sorry, was there something you wanted to add? One thing I wanted to add is if you were going to be really black and white about things, the goal of a systematic review is to report what research is out there and what the findings are. To be honest, it's not even really initially designed to guide practice. It's to, to or to tell a protect practitioner what they should do. It gives them information to use in their critical thinking and their uh, clinical decision-making. A practice guideline, the goal of a practice guideline is to guide practice. So they, they are just, they certainly overlap. They're similar. You use systematic reviews to develop practice guidelines, but practice guidelines are the one where AOTA right now, evidence-based practice, we're really working on these to try and differentiate them from the systematic review. They should be the next step in this translation piece that I've been talking about. So we're trying very hard with our practice, the practice guidelines that are being developed right now to really add a lot of different ways of translating the information. So instead of just academically reporting the findings like a systematic review in a practice guideline, we're trying to develop algorithms for decision-making. We're beefing up our case studies with a lot more detail and making them much more focused and specific. So this is something that could guide a practitioner's decision making. So practice guidelines are really important, but I think it's, they're still a work in progress for just about all fields because we're trying to figure out what is the best way to make them really usable and attractive so a practitioner wants to use them. One great thing is in the past couple of years, we have moved from developing a practice guideline book that had to be purchased to publishing a more streamlined version in AJOT. So again, the systematic reviews that I'm talking about, which we do try and publish in AJOT, the practice guidelines, these are available for free now to AOTA members, but even no matter what they're going to, if, if you're not a member, you could purchase them 
and it will cost less than buying the practice guide the practice guideline books we used to have so we're trying to make this easier for people i'd love that there's a focus on accessibility and and making things more practical can we talk a little bit about that process how can practitioners use practice guidelines um, in their decision making everything about evidence-based practice has three parts there is what does the client need and want there is what does evidence show us and there is what does the uh, the experience and the knowledge of the practitioner those three things have to merge together to get to a tailored evidence-based intervention for a client that's appropriate and uh, um, effective so that is to say not every review is going to have the exact same populations as a practitioner is actually working with or the same setting those kinds of things so any of this when you're reading a systematic review or a practice guideline a practitioner has to realize that probably it's not going to fit exactly for them some will some won't so there's going to be a certain amount of clinical decision making on how close is my setting my population my need to what the research is showing me it would be wonderful and sometimes it does just translate directly sometimes they have to think about is this going to cost something do i need to train people is there going to be a space requirement you know there are sometimes there are going to be things that are potential barriers to translating the findings into the practice so they have to think about that there's going to be a certain amount of flexibility the goal is that from these practice guidelines they will at least be able to take some concrete findings and we try to be very specific in our clinical recommendations in a practice guideline more so than in a systematic review so the goal being that they would actually know if you had a patient with this criteria and these needs for these outcomes this is an intervention or this is a group of interventions you'll want to think about so the guidelines are to guide them in those kind of thinking that kind of thinking and hopefully the case studies we develop and the algorithms um, and podcasts we'll be doing more podcasts related to this will help them with that process I, I really love the way you explained that and i've heard many times before that occupational therapy practice is both a, an art and a science and it feels like these practice guidelines are being developed to provide some science that can help guide a practitioner in in their art of of developing interventions and and making sure that they're they're backed by the correct evidence. Yes, definitely. And I mean, one of the things that we just have to confront is there is not a ton of research in specifically in occupational therapy. So, I mean, compared to other fields, for example. So we broaden our search out to anything that would be within the scope of OT. If you don't need a different degree or certification or licensure, we include those kind of interventions. That also means, you know, a systematic review and the guidelines are related to what we find in our review. So this is just the evidence component of evidence-based practice. So I know there'll be, you know, practitioners, I'm sure, pick up a practice guideline and are disappointed. It's like, well, why isn't this intervention in there? Because that's what we do 80% of our day. It's like, well, but there wasn't research in those years or those timelines that we looked at. 
So we're also going to try and address that in these new practice guidelines by talking about gaps that we found and maybe trying to address through expert opinion important interventions that we know didn't show up in our reviews, but we know that they're being used and they're, they're uh, effective. So as I say, you know, I, I would hate pe for people to be disappointed when they look at them. Our practice guidelines aren't saying this is the only thing you do for stroke. We're just saying here are the guidelines of what we found related to evidence, research, outcomes, and stroke. Perfect. Thank you. And I know you've touched on this uh, a, a little bit already. How else would you recommend that a practitioner incorporate systematic reviews, practice guidelines, um, and even critically appraised topics into their practice? Well, first is that they need to be aware that they exist. So that's the first thing. And that's what we're trying to you know, do. Get the word out and let people know that they're there, they're available. So our critically appraised topics are another product that can be very useful. And they come out of the systematic reviews. They are found on the AOTA website and free to members. They allow for a little more depth to the different themes that are found in systematic reviews. So when you publish your systematic review in AJOT, you've got a word limit. You usually have a lot more information than you can delve into in um, the size of the article. So the critically appraised topics allow them to take maybe one theme from the review and go into more detail. So that might be of, of great use to people as well. So it's first just understanding that it's there and what they're supposed to do. The second would be addressing this idea. We've done surveys, other people have done surveys, but quite often people feel uncomfortable evaluating research. So the products we're talking about have done a good deal of that for you, but you still need to feel confident enough to look at it and think, okay, you know, I'm seeing this, they're saying this is strong evidence, this is moderate evidence, this is low evidence. What does that mean to me? So there's a little bit of that. We have other products like the Journal Club Toolkit, which is in the midst of being updated, but is a wonderful tool. So it's, it doesn't have to fall on one person. Maybe you develop a small group and do a sort of a journal club where you can take practice guidelines or systematic reviews or critically appraised topics and discuss them as a group combine knowledge related to research and practice, but to increase skills. And then once you're actually in a clinical setting and want to be using evidence, it's a matter of being sure that where you work, the setting has enough support that allows you to do it, that you have enough time to stay on top of things, but that you really make use of products that are already completed for you. You know, they're there for you to use. So I would start there for sure. But I do like the idea of groups so that maybe it's a, a group of people you're working with in a clinic. It doesn't even really have to be a full on journal club, but just taking a review. So if you're working in a stroke clinic, look at the systematic reviews, start looking at them and criticize or critiquing them and working with them as a group and deciding what parts what can we translate to our clinic for our or our setting for our population? Absolutely. Establishing a community in, in your practice or with, with colleagues can always help with that. And you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, Beth, but when integrating research into practice, 
it's recommended that practitioners consider their own clinical expertise, the client's preferences, beliefs, and values, as well as, as the research and evidence. Can you tell us why these considerations are, are so important and how a practitioner can always be sure to make them or have them in mind? Sure. Well, I mean, so that is basically the, the ethos of occupational therapy. We are person-centered. We believe very strongly that interventions need to be meaningful and useful to the individual. It has to be tailored. Goals need to be set that are um, team-based so that the client is driving their care. And so it, it's wonderful, it, but it can make it hard for us in terms of research and in taking a research finding and translating it. So it's really important. So, if, so for example, if we're talking about a surgery and there's a new type of a surgery that there's evidence showing is very great outcomes, much better than the last kind of surgery, that's much easier to translate. If you're doing that surgery with this patient that fits their profile, do that surgery. But we aren't that cut and dried. Our interventions are varied. They are quite often multimodal. They certainly need to be tailored to the individual once it gets to the real world. So, you know, there's good and bad to that. It's great because that's occupational therapy and it, it does provide the best service and care. But it does mean that when you're looking at a research project, there may be things that have to be tweaked or maybe this wonderful intervention that that's showing to be so great, your client is not interested in that. That's not their goal. So you're not going to use it. So that there's a really important part that you have for the evidence plus the client and then the practitioner's skills, knowledge, and you just have to combine them. So it's, it's never black and white with us. <laughs> you know, we are very uh, varied. Yes. Very varied. That's good alliteration. <laughs> and really making those those considerations, I think, uh, support clinical reasoning of a practitioner. And it's I guess it's good just to avoid rushing straight into something because you found, you know, right. one journal article that, that supports it. Yes. Beth, what are some, I guess I just mentioned a, a common evidence-based practice pitfall. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some common pitfalls in regards to evidence-based practice that you've seen and how could practitioners avoid them? Well, the first one that I've mentioned, and it, it's there, is potentially the fear of assessing research articles or feeling confident that they know if it's good or bad findings. So the first thing is you don't have to be an expert. We have tools like in our knowledge translation toolkit, which is going to be is being developed that would help a beginner predominantly at the moment make decisions on how to evaluate. There's the Journal Club Toolkit. It also has materials in there that help you with thinking of how to critically look at an article. Plus, there are the products we've talked about, systematic reviews, practice guidelines, critically appraised topics, where that analysis has already been. So one, that's one thing. That's a typical pitfall that people get nervous about. I, you know, you've been out of school a long time. Maybe you don't feel like you're brushed up on research methodology. It shouldn't be a barrier. There are a lot of ways to get around that. A second thing is that it's going to be really rare for a practitioner to find strong evidence 
from more than one article that perfectly fit their client setting and resources, as we just talked about. So there may have to be some tinkering with an intervention. Typically that's not great because if you change it too much, it's not what was the re what the research was about. You know, there's going to have to be a tipping point of how much can you adapt a research-based intervention and still call it a research-based intervention, but it's the real world. And that's one of the, the problems with translating research from a research focus to real world application is that it doesn't always translate perfectly. So that's not just the practitioner's issue, that's a research issue, but it's something they might face. The point is you can only do what you can do. So nothing is gonna be perfect. I doubt they will find anything perfect, but to be aware of what you need to think about and look at and where you can find evidence and information you can trust, I think that's very important for anybody and for all practitioners to feel confident that they can go somewhere and get information they trust. And that's what AOTA is trying very hard to do, be a resource for that. Absolutely. And, and the extra effort and, and emphasis put in by AOTA, um, I think is evidence in those materials that are being published and the resources that are becoming available. Are there any other resources or tools that you would recommend practitioners consult to increase their evidence-based practice knowledge? For members, I would say the first thing is take advantage of the access to free journals. I mean, that is such a bonus and a benefit. You know, you, you do want to stay up to date to some degree on what's being published out there these days. But then just take a look at AOTA website. There will be links to a lot of the things I'm talking about. The Knowledge Translation Toolkit will be coming out in the next few months. The Journal Club Toolkit, I believe, last version is still there, but there'll be a new version coming again very soon. Critically appraised topics by systematic review and practice guideline headings are there. There are evidence connections, so after practice guidelines, we have case study and systematic reviews. We'll have some specific case studies that get published in AJOT related to those reviews. We have, I mean, lots of publications. There's uh, often a column in OT practice, sometimes in the SIS quarterlies. I think regularly there's a evidence-based practice content. There's a lot there. I mean, there is a lot. It's very useful. And we're here. So I mean, you can contact evidence-based practice team and uh, with questions and things like that as well. Absolutely. I love that. The evidence-based practice page on the AOTA website, I think may be my favorite, my favorite webpage right now. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I definitely would recommend it to, to listeners. And it's just right on the AOTA homepage. If you just go to the practice dropdown, evidence-based practice and research and Almost all of the resources that Beth just listed are, are right on that page. We also do typically present all this kind of material at each of the, um, the national conference meetings. Now, things have changed. You know, last year we did a number of web webinars, and I'm not sure what it's going to look like coming up this year. I'm sure there will be some webinars related to our reviews and practice guidelines that are happening now. But 
that is also another way if you're at conference to, to go to our, the presentations related to our reviews and our guidelines they think it can be very helpful absolutely awesome well beth how have you seen evidence-based practice impact patients and clients and practitioners so i am not a practicing ot and i am also not working with ot students i work with doctoral students in gerontology but through working with AOTA, I have definitely come into contact with practitioners who are just, you know, leading the way in evidence-based practice. People who are making it their mission to be sure that their clinics have processes involved that allow the different practitioners time to look at resources, to develop a journal club, to get support. So I know there are certainly a lot of people out there that are real proponents of this and do make the effort to do the translation. Uh, so I know it can happen. I know it's doable, but no matter what, whether you're getting to a full-fledged, you know, systems where a whole a facility is buying into evidence-based practice and valuing it, the individual can do it to, a, to the level that they are comfortable and able. Absolutely. Thank you for encouraging us all and helping us realize it is possible and it can be done. There's no need to feel that that research fear. No. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any more, I guess, resources or, or places where you'd like to recommend listeners find more information related to EBP if they're interested? Well, besides what I've listed for AOTA, I mean, Google it. There is a lot of material out there related to this and relating to what to think about when trying to translate research. This is a, I mean, it, it is the, a big focus right now in research and in clinical practice. We need to figure out a way to bridge this gap. And so a lot of people are working on it. So there are tons of websites and places to look that can be helpful. So I would just say to explore, but I would start with AOTA and then branch out from there. Absolutely. There's there's plenty of materials out there and really so much of it is just taking a little bit of time and, and trying to seek it out. Yep. And understanding the value of it. Yep. Understanding the value of it. Absolutely. We've come now to the final question. Not quite a usable nugget, but what I like to call the golden nugget segment. Yeah. And that's where I ask you this, Beth, if you could share one piece of knowledge or one clinical recommendation to our listeners what would you say? I would say, don't be afraid. So you don't need to be an expert. You don't have to do it on your own. Uh, there are, there's a lot of supports out there. And so make use of it, break through any kind of uh, mental barrier that may exist that I don't understand it, or I can't do it where I work. It, it's doable. So that would be my, my take home. Don't be afraid and go for it. Absolutely. I love that take home message. That fear of, of research fear that we've mentioned a couple of times. It's interesting that if you can get over that research fear and begin to incorporate more evidence into your practice, I think that can make practitioners more confident in the interventions they're providing um, in knowing that it is backed by science and it is backed by evidence. So in a way, not being fearful of evidence helps you to not be fearful um, in practice and have more confidence in what you do. 
Yep, I agree with you 100%. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Beth. This has been an awesome interview. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Well, thank you. I'm excited to do it. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. See you next time as we bring occupational therapy research and applications straight to you.